Well, good morning. It's, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, yes, I'm trying out contacts again. Uh, I do this like once a year, so I'm just going to kind of squint a lot and rub my eyes. Um, we're looking at sloth this morning in our series on the seven deadly sins. And so we're going we're gonna to look at three different things today. First, we have to look at what is sloth and what isn't sloth. And then we'll look at shrinking back and finally the story of the world. Uh, do you guys remember the movie Groundhog's Day with Bill Murray? To me, that movie is really stars Stephen Tobolowsky, who plays Needle Nose Ned, Ned the Head, Bing. Remember that guy? He's my favorite character in the whole thing. But Bill Murray plays Phil Connors, who's this big shot weatherman from the big city, and he has to go every year make this pilgrimage to dumpy, little, out-of-the-way Punxsutawney. And he goes for the annual Groundhog's Day weather report. But this particular time, Phil, Phil realizes that he's stuck there. And he ends up living the same exact day in this tiny little town over and over and over again. To everybody around Phil, it's the first time that they've lived that day. But to him, it just it makes him crazy. At first, Phil decides to use his lack of consequences to just live absolutely wildly, just in total gluttony in every possible way. He eats whatever he wants, does whatever he wants, drinks whatever he wants, because his existence is meaningless. As he's sitting in the diner and he's ordered enough food for like 20 people, his coworker says, aren't you worried about cholesterol? Not Phil. There are no consequences to his hard living, not even a hangover. But this, after a while, becomes pretty boring, and he needs something to move on to, and so he decides to focus all of his efforts on seducing his co-worker, Rita. And so each day, he learns a little bit more about her. He learns her favorite drink. He learns what she did in college. He learns her favorite quotes, her favorite stories. And then he pretends to be the exact sort of man that she's looking for. And so in a series of living out the same day over and over, he starts to learn about her and then pretends like he loves her, like he's the kind of man she would want. But Phil doesn't actually love Rita. And she's astute enough to actually call him on it, and he admits it. He admits that he doesn't. He wants to just have her on his own terms without actually changing anything about himself. But when he realizes that that's impossible, that he can't have Rita without change, he enters into a complete despair. He ceases all activity. He sits in his chair watching the same episode of Jeopardy over and over and just drinks himself into a stupor. Phil had successfully seduced many other women in this town through this same method of learning a little bit about them. He lived in criminal mischief. He had a lifetime's worth of sin and debauchery and absolute fun, partying, eating, and drinking, only to be stuck in the same day over and over again. And his despair eventually gets so overwhelming that he attempts suicide only to learn that there's no escape. He can't get out of this daily repetition of meaninglessness. So as I said, this morning we're looking at the sin of sloth. And it's a sin that the ancients have told us is a mortal sin. It's a deadly sin. But if we take our modern definition, our modern ideas of sloth, and we apply it to Phil Connors, what we'll see, we'll just assume that he was only engaging in sloth when he had given up, when he'd ceased all activity and just sat in that lazy boy recliner looking at the television. But the truth is that Phil was engaging in sloth just as much in his manic activity 
as he was in his absolute death-like laziness because sloth is not just being lazy. It's being lazy in loving. And it's sort of a difficult concept for us because we've, we've grown up so much with this idea that sloth is just laziness. And if, if that's all that, that sloth is, then I think we would have to say it's, it's maybe not a deadly sin. <laughs> and even if it is a deadly sin, if it's just laziness, then most of us here can feel off the hook because we feel like we're pretty hardworking people. We're not just sitting around not doing anything. But sloth is actually much more insidious than laziness, and indeed it is quite deadly. Sloth has gone by many different names throughout time, and the ancients called it acedia. And, and acedia is the destination of all the other deadly sins. Out of all the things that we're looking at uh, through this series, this one is the worst, and it is the destination that all of those sins take us to. You see, all of the other sins with their various expressions and the way they work themselves out in our lives are simply disordered loves. They are a misorientation toward God. We take something like sex or food or work and we, we set it up as an idol and we, we make that thing the most important thing but we're still passionate about that thing. Acedia is not a misunderstanding. It's not a misordering of things. It's just a complete lack of caring. There's a former president of the Czech Republic who was a, a playwright and an essayist, and he wrote in a letter uh, to his wife as he was in prison. He said, The tragedy of modern man is not that he knows less and less about the meaning of his own life, but that it bothers him less and less. Kierkegaard, I think, put it even better. He said, Let others complain that the age is wicked. My complaint is that it is wretched, for it lacks passion. Men's thoughts are flimsy like lace. The thoughts of their hearts are too paltry to be sinful. For a worm, it might be regarded as a sin to harbor such thoughts, but not for a being made in the image of God. This is the reason my soul always turns back to the Old Testament and to Shakespeare. I feel that those who speak there are at least human beings. They hate, they love, they murder their enemies and curse their descendants throughout all generations. They sin. Modern life can be really schizophrenic, can it? At one turn, it, there's just this frenetic energy where despite the fact that we have all these technological advances, we're just always on, always working, always responding. And then in the same exact city, there can be pockets of, of absolute laziness it's not 18-hour workdays, it's an 18-pack of beer and the incessant drone of daytime TV. But it's in this frenzy and this inactivity that sloth shows its face because sloth is just a masking of the pain of life. And we use our activity or our inactivity to mask the pain of living. Kathleen Norris, who's a poet and author, tells us that acedia is like spiritual morphine. When life becomes too troubling, too complex, too difficult, we simply just give up and stop caring. And for some of us, that means we just pour ourselves into working as hard as we can. For others of us, it means we just give up and sit on the couch. Asadia is an, is an ancient word, and it's really di sort of difficult to define. I think the closest we can come is to say that it means the absence of care. And that in itself is a little bit difficult because 
what does it mean to care? Well, the root of the word to care originally meant to cry out, to be, to be caring enough to actually cry out for help if you need it. We can see this, Acedia actually played out in the classic uh, children's book by Maurice Sendak, Pierre. Has anyone ever read that book? All right, my wife, we have it, so maybe it's, maybe it's not a classic. Mark, Mark's read it. This, this book is great. There's, okay, we've got more. People are, people are, oh, now I remember. There's another one. Sorry, guys. Okay, pretty much everyone here read it, for the record. In this book, Pierre is this little boy who responds to everything his parents say with, I don't care. They try to threaten him with punishment. They try to give him treats or trips to the zoo or whatever it is. Everything they say to him, he says, I don't care. I don't care. And one day he meets a lion. And the lion says, is that all you have to say? To which Pierre says, I don't care. So the lion says, well then, what if I eat you? And Pierre says, I don't care. And so the lion eats him. Maurice Sendak has a knack for (laughs) telling very calming stories for children. Pierre, Pierre eventually does learn his lesson. I'll let you guys get the book yourself. You can, you can end it. As I said before, sloth isn't laziness. It's laziness in loving. And the ancients saw sloth or asadia as a willful moving away from the love and life of God. And it's discussed mostly by the ancient desert fathers and mothers, these ascetic monks who had moved out into the middle of nowhere, and they, they devoted themselves to an entire lifetime of prayer. They would sit in their cells and weave baskets as they prayed all day long. And one of these monks talked about the noontime demon of Asadia. And what he was saying was that every day around noon, there was this temptation for the monks to turn away from the life that they had committed themselves to, to turn away from prayer and just go out and do anything else. Because what they realized is that even in locking themselves away, I mean, many of us are sitting here thinking, that actually sounds pretty great. I don't have to, I don't have to deal with my kids. I just have to sit there and just kind of talk to God. That sounds great. No boss, no job, no bills. But what the monks realized is that engaging in, with God daily became its own sort of torment. It, it became so difficult. They were so tied in with the pain of the world in engaging God, they couldn't get away from it. But they wanted to, and that's asadia. But here's the tricky part, is that asadia or, or sloth looks a lot like Depression. So where do we get off calling it a sin? Now, for those of you that have have dealt with depression, you know that at times the church can be one of the most unhelpful places, to be honest, about your struggles because the response is often, well, it's probably your fault, so just feel better. So before we move on, let let me just say this. Depression is a sickness, not a sin. And it requires healing through, through, you know, an experienced counselor, sometimes pharmacology. It's not something that you just get over, okay? Let me say that loud and clear. 
But just because that's true, just because depression is, is a thing and it's a sickness, doesn't mean that the spiritual vice of asadia or sloth isn't also real. And we have to be willing to actually look ourselves in the mirror and really stare down, which is it? Is it sickness or sin? And what we'll find is that the cure for asadia is very, very different from the cure for depression, and we'll circle back to that in a moment. So by this time, I think many of you are saying, okay, we get it. Sloth is different from laziness, and it's different from depression, though it sometimes looks like either of those. It's being lazy in love. It's apathy. Great. What does that have to do with our passage in Deuteronomy? Well, in Deuteronomy, Moses is basically recapping what has gone on with the people of Israel for the last 40 years. So here are the people of Israel. They'd been enslaved to the superpower of the world for over 400 years, and just when it seemed like they couldn't take it anymore, they watch as God does unbelievable things in their midst. Time after time, they see God make a mockery of human power, and they are led out of their place of enslavement. And it happens just like God said it would. The people that owned them are actually showering them with gifts and riches as they leave. And as they get near to the land of promise, the land that God had told Abraham his descendants would dwell in and that God would dwell there with them, Moses says to the people, guys, look, we're here. This is the land that God has promised to give you. And guess what? He has given it to you. Past tense. It's the place that he said he would give us to dwell with us. Remember? Do you remember the God that I'm talking about? This is the one that brought us out of slavery from Egypt. The one that stopped at nothing to have us. That God. The God that parted the seas. The God that wandered before us and behind us in cloud and fire. He is the one who has given you the land. Go get it. And the people say, yeah, you know, we should send some people in there just so we know what's going on and we kind of get the idea of, you know, where the main roads are so we know where to go. And so Moses says, sure. And so they send in these guys and the guys come back and they bring some fruit of the land and it is sweet. It is, the, it is everything they had been told it was and more. And also there's some really tong, strong, tall people that live there. And then the people change their minds and they say to Moses, we can't do it. They might be giants. And Moses, of course, says, that's a great band name, Dibs. And that's how that happened. No, what's interesting about this story is not so much the fear that the people of Israel have about the giants in the land. It's that they murmur to themselves in their tents, God hates us. God hates us. He freed us from Egypt only to let us be killed by the Amorites. And Moses tries to reason with them. God will fight for you here just like he did in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. You have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way here. But they don't listen. God hates us, they said. The people shrink back 
from entering the land that God had promised to Abraham way back when, the land that he had brought them to himself with a mighty hand. Yeah, they might have been afraid of the giants, but they'd seen God overthrow the most giant empire in all the earth, Egypt. And the the reality is, is that they know that he doesn't hate them. They know it. They're telling themselves that lie because they really find God's love and care undesirable. They can't bring themselves to just enter the land and let him fight. That's how little they care. It's been said that a person in despair is in despair because they see participating in the divine life of God as appealing but impossible. A person gripped by the sin of sloth or asadia, though, sees participating in the divine life as possible but unappealing. And this really is the story of the world. Whether you've been part of the church for some time or if this is the first time you've wandered into one this morning, we have to relearn this story over and over. We will continue to react like the people of Israel. And the story of the world is one that we tell here all the time. It's the story of of an all-good, all-powerful, triune God who created the entire universe, who spoke into being all that is, his beauty, creativity, and unending joy in his creation bursts forth in sunrise after sunrise, sunset after sunset, tides changing, the colors of spring, the northern lights, the stillness of an old-growth forest, the chatter of animals simply playing for the pleasure of it, a rainstorm in the desert. And it is in the midst of this beauty that God places his image bearers, his ambassadors, man and woman, made for one another, made to live in his garden, made to live in him. And part of them being made in his image involves having a will, an ability to choose. And we chose to run away. And from that day to this, we have all grumbled the same thing in our hearts. God hates us. Do you see that we have, we have been dragged into consciousness to experience all the complexity of good and evil, beauty and sorrow, pain and joy, and rather than embrace it, we try to cut ourselves off from it. At the very best, we wake up exhausted, try to keep our kids happy, go to a job that's good enough, fight traffic on the way home, keep the kids quiet till they go to sleep, and fall into bed exhausted, walking zombies, Phil Connors, living the same day over and over and over. And we let all of our days fly by us, assuming, as Kathleen Norris so aptly put it, that the present is just a prelude to something more important. But the Christian story tells us that this is the moment. The present is the moment of importance. This is the day of salvation. And in the parable that we read in the gospel reading, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a king who throws a wedding banquet for his son. And he sends out his messengers to say, come, I have created an amazing feast for you guys. Come and have it. And we say, I think you might hate us. So he actually dives into humanity as Jesus. And in our sloth, in our acedia, we simply just go back to watching TV. Or worse, we nail him to a cross and whisper, God hates us. And the more that we tell ourselves that lie, the more we will try to deaden ourselves to life through work, 
sex, drink, food, because life itself has become unbearable. It's unbearable because we were designed to be loved by God and to live in him. But we've convinced ourselves that it's not worth dealing with. We would rather stare into the glass of a smartphone than the eyes of our children. We would rather watch ones and zeros flit across a TV screen than whisper to our spouse. We would rather deaden our senses with food and drink than experience the pain of loneliness. And in so doing, we have cut ourselves off from the experience of the joy of acceptance. When we try to cut ourselves off from pain, we cut ourselves off from joy. It's easier to lust than love. It's easier to drink than talk. And it is much easier to be distracted than to rest in God. When Phil Connors finally comes to the end of himself and he realizes that there is no escape of this daily meaninglessness that he now encounters, he actually leaves behind his despair and his frenzy and instead starts to do the hard work of loving other people. He starts to practice in very small but real ways the things that a loving person would do. And as a result, he becomes the kind of person that Rita could truly love. Marriage counselors will often tell couples that are struggling to sort of pretend like they love each other. You know, you've been in it for 10 or 20 years and things just are difficult and you're not really communicating as well as you used to and you start to think back to when you first met that person. And what the marriage counselors will tell you is, yeah, go back to that time and and start doing it again. Buy her flowers, write them a note, go on a date. And what they find is that the more that you practice the acts of love, the feelings that we associate with love actually return and we start to fall in love once again. And this is the very thing that the desert fathers and mothers were onto, is that loving God takes practice. And they practiced it in prayer. And so it, it, was, it was the demon of asadia or sloth that was trying to drive them away from the very thing that they needed to do, which was to re-engage in their love of God through prayer, to re-engage in the Christian story. The story that tells us of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that they were for our sake. That he came to invite us to this wedding, and it's our wedding. And he's the feast. He's the one that we feed on. And it's definitive proof that God doesn't hate us. In fact, he loves us with a love like a roaring fire, and he loves us just the way we are. But he loves us too much to leave us that way. And being loved and loving someone requires change. And change is painful. And the sin of sloth wants us to believe that it's not worth it. But it is. If we can bring ourselves to enter the fire of his love and endure that pain of change, we will not be destroyed we will be left breathless at how beautiful we have become as a community, as the church in Jesus. That's the story that we've been called to embody, the story that we've been called to rise up and enter into. Don't let sloth tell you it's not worth it. Let's pray together. Father, we are so easily distracted 
it's so much easier to not engage with you, to not feel our own brokenness, to feel the pain and suffering of a world that is, that is living apart from you. And yet, we have been called to, to believe, to trust that your love for us will never run dry. That far from hating us, you have actually given up your son. That Jesus, you have given up your life for us. As we come now to just a foretaste of the wedding feast that you are inviting all of us to, would we come and feed? Would we come with joy and celebration, not with fear? Let us come and eat on you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.